The Athletic. This is Talk of the Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. We're coming to you slightly earlier on in the week because we're doing a, a semi-emergency podcast. Uh, we're gathered late on Wednesday night to talk about perhaps the most dramatic day yet for Manchester United just this week, of course, uh, of stories, uh, speculation and, and statements now as well. Um, there's so many transfer bits to get through as well. Um, but before we go any further, before I introduce you to everyone who's here, uh, after the week we've had, I need that. Uh, it's a kind of uh, original Yankee pale ale, which we uh, we might get to. Are you being paid to say that by original pale ale? I uh, didn't actually mention the brand name, in fairness. Do you know what, actually? If we had a drink for every single player that have been linked with Manchester United just lately, us three would not get through the podcast, would we? We'd be slurring a quarter of the way through. That's a great drinking game. <laughs> Andy Mitten's with us. Laurie Whitwell is with us as well. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, we will talk about transfers. My goodness, we'll try and squeeze them in somewhere. We'll try and work out exactly uh, who has been writing rubbish about Cristiano Ronaldo, and there's two guilty faces looking back at me right now. <laughs> um, but of course, there's only one place to start, and that is... The interest from Sir Jim Radcliffe about a potential bid for Manchester United. It's been reported in the Times. Laurie, what can you say about it? Yeah, it's something that's been rumoured for a little bit now, certainly since the start of the season, really, and the kind of focus that's been on the Glazers. You know, the ownership has certainly come under more scrutiny, hasn't it, with the results going the way they have, um, the protests the fans are organising gathering you know, a bit of pace and, and not going away. This does feel like a, a significant moment where you've got a guy who's you know very wealthy man, I think at one point Britain's richest man, many billions in the bank, um, and has already tried to buy one club or at least made a bid, which we might get on to in terms of whether that was serious or whether that was a stalking horse for this real you know, attempt to buy a different Premier League club um, when he went into for Chelsea at the end of the bidding process last season. Um, but the fact that he's come out, or at least his spokesman has come out and said he would be interested in buying a, a stake in Manchester United and talking about a reset that needs to be done and how important the club is for the city. It's not a, a short statement in the end. It's actually kind of a detailed one, really. It is talking in hypotheticals, you know, if the club is for sale. But we had the Bloomberg report earlier in the day that spoke about um, people close to the Glazers suggesting that they would be open to selling a minority stake. And we can have a debate about what that means, what that might look like, why now, what the realities of it would be. Um, but it does feel like a kind of significant moment. It does feel like a moment, doesn't it? Definitely, especially with the protests that are planned for the Liverpool game, which we'll talk about later on in the podcast, of course. And it, even the statement in itself, the time is right for a reset. Any talk of a takeover is going to get Manchester United fans excited, of course, because of the popularity or otherwise of the current ownership. But that statement in particular, how excited should Manchester United fans be? I think there's excitement and I can understand why. We've spoke many times about the Glazers and their unpopularity among Manchester United fans. I think in recent weeks and months that's been building and building. It seems to feel a little bit different uh, in recent weeks. Um, the media has been extremely critical of the Glazer family and I think a lot of United fans will take hope uh, from the fact that Britain's richest man, he's a Mancunian, he grew up as a, 
a Manchester United fan, has come out, or his spokesman has, and said that he is interested in taking over uh, Manchester United. It's, it, it, it is explicit, I want to buy Manchester United, says Jim Ratcliffe. And I think if you polled Manchester United fans now, 90% of them would uh, ask, if asked yes or no, would, would, would say yes to that. There's no perfect owner at all. I don't actually think Manchester United need to be owned by anybody. The club's big enough to stand on its own two feet. But let's be realistic here. The, the club is where it is with the Glazers owning um, the club and having total power. So I think it's going to be a long, long way ahead. I don't think anything's going to be happening overnight. And I think that Jim Ratcliffe would have to build a stake and build it up and up with the long-term view of taking full control. I've never been given any indication that the Glazers are looking to to sell Manchester United, so I don't want to put a dampener on it. Mm. Yeah, it's not about putting a dampener on it, is it? It's about providing some context for fans who are who are wondering what this means. Yeah, I, I've been speaking to people every day who know far far more about the financial market than I do. You know, Manchester United's got a big fan base. And within that fan base, naturally, statistically, there's going to be some people who work extremely high up in the world of finance and economics. Um, I've been speaking to them all of the time. And they've been saying things like, rhetorically, yes, Manchester United would be for sale at a ridiculous price. But are the Glazers just looking to get an idiot to invest in a chunk and have no real proper say in the running of Manchester United. Uh, one of them said to me yesterday, I really hope the fan revolt gets much bigger. The Glazers have got to go. And people have got very strong opinions about the Glazers. We know that from the fans, but people who work in the, in the industry as well, they do not think that they're competent owners for Manchester United. And I think it's pretty easy to argue that case. Yeah, there's some really interesting articles on this now, of course, on The Athletic. Matt Slater's written a, a very revealing piece, headline, Manchester United, the Glazers, and why football is awash with debt. Of course, it talks about good debt and bad debt that's involved in football. Um, but there's some standout lines in there, Laurie, really, about the current situation, financial situation for Manchester United, at least. The gross debt stands at $596 million, which is pretty much where it was when Manchester United were taken over in that leverage buyout, of course, back when the Glazers first took charge. And Matt writes as well that there's a sense from the New York Stock Exchange that they're sort of suggesting investors that it's time to go because the stock price has fallen from $14, US dollars that is, in 2012 when Manchester United were first floated, down to last week, uh, $11.50, roughly, or $11.55, to say it in a more normal way. Um, all these figures have got me confused already. Uh, but that's gone up 10% since because of takeover speculation. Uh, Kieran Maguire is quoted in that piece as well, who does the Price of Football blog, talking about the Glazers getting something like a 2,000 return on investment, and that's placing the valuation at something like $2.6 billion. And Andy's already said on this podcast that it could well be north of that, the valuation. There's a really interesting Twitter thread as well from the Swiss Ramble, talking about just how many dividends they've taken. Of course, the only team in the Premier League that's subject to their owners taking dividends is Manchester United at the moment. The interest payments over the last 12 years... 
uh, and nearly as much as the rest of the Premier League combined uh, over the last decade. Manchester United owners have taken 154 million out of the club, and that compares to 684 million for Manchester City's owners that they've put in. Whichever way you look at any of the stats, any of the facts that any of the people have presented, Laurie, it doesn't make great reading, does it? No, we did a piece uh, in May 2020, just as the pandemic was gripping on the Glazers, you know, 10,000 word piece that tried to get to grips with how the takeover happened, how it was allowed to happen, as Andy's touched on earlier in, in different podcasts, you know, the pliable government and, and FA sort of stepped aside really uh, when they could have shown their teeth and, and actually blocked this from happening because it was loading the club with an awful lot of debt that wasn't necessarily going to work. You know, it was kind of quite fortunate at one point that they, they sort of squeaked through um, and going on into how much it's actually cost the club. You know, I think you can, there's different totals, but we kind of think that it's cost Manchester United £1.5 billion for the privilege of being owned by the Glazers, something like that, maybe even north of that now. And they spent £270 million of their own money acquiring the shares and then you know getting that stake so that they could force that leverage takeover. They've already made profit on that £270 million you know, in terms of the dividends, as we spoke about, but in terms of the IPO, management fees, and now in terms of... Uh, share sales that, that keep happening you know so you had Avram at one point you had Kevin and Ed Glazer selling shares all that money going to them rather than the club now this is the kind of big question about this potential sale of, of, a, of a minority stake where would that money go is it part of these conversations where United are looking at actually building a stadium and it would be a huge step change if the Glazers did do this because they haven't ever done this in, in terms of putting what is theoretically their own money because they could just pocket it if they sold some shares into the club. But how else would you raise funds for a stadium? You know, you can acquire more more debt, but, you know, we know they're in talks with fan groups about how they proceed with the stadium. You know, can they really countenance having more debt on the club when it's been there for such a long time and it's not got any smaller? So actually selling uh, some equity in the club would at least raise funds there clearly you could do sponsorship clearly the Glazers could fund it themselves but that's not going to happen so you know equity is one avenue for that so if that is part of this and then the long-term goal is that actually you know why would the Glazers do that because it would be a huge change you know I know Joel started speaking to the fans that's been a big change since Super League but this would be something else is it because they, you know, generally think Joel and, and Avram now think actually, you know, let's let's do this. We've, we've changed our minds, or is it because maybe, and they've got to get the other siblings to agree to this? By the way, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I'm really curious about that dynamic. Who, you know, I don't. I'm not sure they always agree on on all these things in, in terms of share sales, in terms of what to do going forward with the club. But would they ultimately see that as a long term benefit, where the value to, of the club having a new stadium, which making a lot more money, which people. Uh, you know, enjoy spending time in over time that increases the value of the club, and therefore, you know, th- th- that the, the, the share sale that they do now is actually turns into profit because they can then put the money back in the club. Listen, we're talking a long time in the future, we're kind of hypothesizing here, but I can see why people get excited about a potential for a sale of the club because people have just got so frustrated with how it's run under the Glazers that they've not been good owners at all, taking money out of the club, the team is in decline. 
the commercial revenues aren't even going up anymore. They're they're in decline, really. The that's pursuing... interesting, isn't it? Because that's been a big defence of the ownership in the past, hasn't it? That they've grown the commercial revenues. I mean, the, it's a fact that it's tripled since they took over commercial revenue. However, since 2017, it's dropped 15%. That That's not a trend that shows that the progress is still being made. Like you say, Manchester City and Liverpool both making up the gap or even taking over Manchester United. And the Adidas deal if they don't qualify for the Champions League for a second year in a row, it comes down by 30%, which I think is like 22.5 million. Now, there are ways in terms of accounting that they can offset that. We've spoken to people and fine, but it's ultimately a a real cost to the club for failure in football terms, which is always a thing that Ed Woodward claimed wrongly that um, wouldn't affect them. You know, whatever happens on the pitch, we can still make money off it. And now the, the Glazers will claim that they were the ones with this foresight of commercial activity where, okay, forget having these exclusive partnerships with a few select companies. Let's spread it all over the globe, have regional partners. Let's get the get the name out there and we'll make loads more money. Now they, you know, when you criticise the Glazer ownership, they, they will say, we've added that to the club. So that's a value that we've added. I mean, I don't really buy that because, you know, I think anybody would have thought maybe that's a way to go. And also it's not actually now still paying dividends is it um pardon the pun um and there was also in the, in the piece that we talked about um that we did you know the big glazer read that we did in, in may 2020 we spoke to people that used to be at the club working and they said they had actually gone down a path of making it a bit more exclusive and they thought that would actually bring more value to those individual sponsorships because of the fact that it was a kind of prestige um association um and it starts off with a story of the the first time they were at Old Trafford, um, three of the brothers, and they turned to people in the director's box, I think Rooney had scored, uh, and they said, what happens to the ball? Um, which, forgive me doing that impersonation, but that's how it was told to me. Um, and basically their question was, does that ball not now get kind of sold off as like an item, like it does in baseball? I think if you kind of, if a baseball gets hit for a home run or something, you know, you can auction it off and, and it has a value. So they, they were always thinking about these ways of adding value to the club or of seeing how you could commercialise different aspects to it. So um, yeah, go and have a read of that if, if you've not already. But I, I do want to make just one more point, if I can, on the fact that fans are getting excited. And a few I've seen online that are saying, this is the bigger picture. This is really why United aren't spending this window and, and they're kind of having you know a, a bit of a, a scramble to the finish. It's two totally separate things. They're not associated. This is a long-term thing that may or may not even happen. You know, it's, it's kind of the origins of something. It's a conversation happening. It's exciting for sure because it's a, a step change in what we've had before. We, we had Saudi Arabia were rumoured to be interested, weren't they, in a kind of takeover. And I think ultimately they did offer a, a 20% uh, stake that they wanted to kind of buy didn't go anywhere um, but this is this is different because you've got a guy saying I want to buy Manchester United and he's got the resources for it um, but it's two different things in terms of people getting excited over the transfer activity. Yeah I think it is interesting like we've sort of been pointing towards that it feels like a moment because this is obviously been a dire week for United on and off the pitch for so many different reasons not least of course the result of the weekend we're building up to a, a game against Liverpool which is of course always an important match for United for United fans for English football full stop for world football to be fair it's still one of the most sought after fixtures on the calendar but it comes at a time Andy as well where the Manchester United Supporters Trust have released a statement saying that they want urgent and radical change where the 1958 Fans group have announced plans for their protest, their march to Old Trafford this weekend. 
if, if Monday's this weekend as well. Um, there does feel like a lot of momentum all heading in the same sort of direction around this sort of topic at the minute. So again, I think fans are sort of clutching onto that a little bit as well, aren't they? Fans want to believe that there is a possibility of a, a brighter future. That's why fans go crazy for transfers. And this idea that someone can take over the club who's far better resourced than the current uh, people fills fans with hope. But Do you think it is that though, Andy? Do you think it is the fact that, that fans think that United would be able to spend more money on transfers? Or is it, or is it more sort of the, the general malaise that the club seems to be in and the, the people who are in certain positions and the policies and all that sort of thing? I think fans would expect better ownership and with that comes more astute decision-making, be it in the transfer market, be it in the stadium redevelopment. Laurie made a good point when he used the word Saudis. They did actually talk to the Glazers, but all that was offered to them was a minority stake. So they would be the ones who have to give um, something up. Maybe having heard Laurie's American accent in his last talk, he could go in as a as some sort of negotiator because you know, it clearly sounds like he's from Alabama there. Awful, isn't it? I think the fans are right to be angry. Look look at the start to the season. The most important thing happening that we can judge on a weekly basis is the football matches and the results. None of us could have foreseen how bad those first two games have been. I mean, that game at Brentford, we, won't, we, we, we did the inquest on Monday, but for Manchester United to concede four goals inside 25 minutes, it's unheard of. We can be naturally optimistic and we're seeing that Liverpool aren't winning games and if we beat Liverpool on Monday, we go above Liverpool. But if we root our feelings in reality, Manchester United is still in a pretty bad place at the moment. Bottom of the Premier League. Yeah. I mean, that is just... I still can't get over that. I and mean, We're a few days in since United have been in that position. Laurie, this, this Monday has the potential for the biggest protest since the Liverpool game was postponed doesn't it? I mean, all of, the, all of this is only going to add to the feeling, isn't it? Well, you said an interesting thing before we started recording, didn't you? And I'm kind of interested to maybe pick up on it a little bit. But this does this take the pin a little bit out of the... Or does this diffuse the kind of... Uh, the, the building uh, angst that it, there is amongst United fans? Um, the fact that there could be light at the end of the tunnel, you know, if you want the Glazers to be gone. Um, so, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like... I feel like people will ultimately still have the the anger that they do have about the results, about the fact that the transfer market seems to just be this one mad scramble around Europe for whoever is available, you know, and we can chuck a load of money at it eventually and there's no strategy behind it. But it, you do, I do wonder, will some people be a little bit softened? I don't know, what do you think? Well, no, I, I think actually, I think there is, a, there is a sense that I've seen certainly online and, and speaking to other United fans that, that people feel like the direct action that has been taking place over the course of the last year or so, or, or even longer, it, it is what's leading to people having an interest in buying a club, is what's giving people like Sir Jim Ratcliffe hope that it could be achievable to take over Manchester United, that the Glazers might sell because of just how negative the groundswell of opinion is. So if that's the case, Andy, that maybe means that more people are going to get behind uh, the process on Monday and, and get behind the idea that they're unhappy with who currently owns the club. Yeah. We've seen a protest at the before the Brighton game, people meeting up in Salford Keys and walking to the ground. 75,000 people can't do that. The, the Manchester United's demographic is so wide 
had a mate um, message me the other day, I'm going with my little lad, is there going to be trouble at the game on Monday? What should I do? So everyone's got different questions. And the club, I think, respect the fact that fans are allowed to protest as long as it's done in a peaceful manner. I've seen stuff online about empty Old Trafford, but if you can't anchor that into someone in real life or something with credibility... I think it's very difficult to pull something like that off. Asking people to boycott the match has always been fraught. And sometimes there's a lot of noise online, but in reality, it is completely the opposite of that. If Manchester United are struggling against Liverpool in the match on Monday, I think you could have a natural reaction. And I think English football fans are often best with their natural reactions. So we often look with envy at the ultra groups on the continent. I've put that to a few players over the years and they've come back to me and went, no, 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 no. When you're attacking in an English ground, that roar, that reaction to what the fans are seeing is one of the best things that can happen to a footballer. And I was quite struck by that. And conversely, if things are bad, because if Liverpool were four up as they were in the equivalent fixture last season at half-time, I think that would be the straw which breaks the camel's back for a lot of moderate Manchester United fans. I remember you giving an example with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, 2nd of October last year. I, I said, he's starting to lose the moderates here. And he lost them. He never got them back and he lost his job six weeks later. I think that sensible Manchester United fans who might not have any interest in the politics, they would have a breaking point as well. And if United were on the way to losing the, the third game at the start of the season... I think you're going to see a, a major real-life reaction. What form that takes, we don't know. But it might just be that natural um, reaction. It's, it's going to be on television. And fans can show many ways of showing their disdain. To what extent does that actually affect the Glazers in terms of actually selling the club? Um, because they are capitalists. Do they really care what happens in Manchester? I mean, the Super League did affect them, definitely. The fact that they got the match called off and it went all over the globe, those pictures, that's a significant event. And I do think that you've got the uh, potential for some real tension in the stands if United do start to lose to Liverpool and whether that then bleeds into what the Glazers think, I, I don't know, but it's it's curious because why would the Glazers sell now? The idea was that they would get in the Super League and then that would secure revenue for a number of years, you know, in perpetuity really, at a high level, and the value of the club would rocket, you know, $10 billion people were talking about. That's out the window. So why would they then sell now? They could kind of keep going. But actually, the price that Chelsea went for has kind of raised the market value really. They've kind of thought actually you can get a lot of you know premium on on our so the, the current price is at like two and a half billion I think something like that. It was four billion when the Saudis I think were rumoured to be looking at interest and that was kind of okay. You thought two billion on on top of market value you know, maybe that could work. But now you're talking about two and a bit billion. They could maybe even get this that six billion. So maybe they're looking at it thinking this is actually our time to to potentially sell. This is at maybe the best moment to do it and get a real good return. That's just one sort of school of thought. I don't know how real that is when you come to it, but so why now? That That's potentially why now. If they think that the Chelsea thing has, has really changed the, the dynamics of it all, which, as we mentioned earlier, Jim Radcliffe came in at the end and made a, a sort of cheeky late bid, um, despite the, the whole process being open. Sounds and familiar, doesn't it? Weeks long. Exactly. You, you sort of wonder... Cheeky late is bids. That, yeah, exactly. He can fit right in at Manchester United, can't he? Yeah. yeah. Um, but was that a, a kind of just a shot across the bowels, I suppose, to say, okay, 
you know, and there's this idea that he was also a Chelsea fan, you know, as a kid, or, or he's been to Chelsea matches certainly in his adult life. Um, but was that a sign to say, okay, I'm actually going to be this is I'm putting my money here for Chelsea, but really I'm I'm serious about owning a football club later down the line. Just to wrap this up, then Andy, this section. Do you think that Sir Jim Radcliffe is more serious about buying Manchester United than Elon Musk? <laughs> I woke up and and saw that all over social media. I thought, where's that come from? But. My first reaction was, oh, this could be good. and Because, again, you want to believe in, in a potential positive for the future of Manchester United. Can you imagine? Um, Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah. It's very um, flattering when Manchester United are linked to all these extremely wealthy individuals. But, but once again, I think United just needed a fair crack at the whip under the Glazers with all the dividend and interest payments. It's like the club is being asked to swim with a ton of bricks on its back. It's not fair. I just think United being able to exist on fair and equal grounds would be a huge progression for Manchester United. And is Radcliffe serious? Is he the one who could well, do it? Well, seri- he's a serious individual. You don't get to be Britain's richest man by not being serious. And he's already owned um, Nice Football Club. I went there during lockdown and I saw how serious they were. He owns um, Ineos, which sponsor the biggest um, cycle team in the UK. I've got a little funny story about that. I don't come out of it well, but I'll tell you anyway. It's worth 30 seconds on I this I love pod. these stories. They're the best ones. Right. So end of July, I needed to get away from football. And a magazine said, why don't you go and write about the Tour de France? I remember this. I got offered a place in a car in the middle of all the cyclists and thought, great, this is really interesting. But because I'm not a cycling journalist, I was asking all really open, innocent questions and and learning, real learning experience. And then I thought, I need to speak to a proper cyclist. So I walked up to the Ineos bus, which is owned by Jim Radcliffe, after the race. And uh, I said, I want to speak to a cyclist. Now, everyone had masks on. So this lady come over and she was clearly the PR for Ineos. She went, right, blah, 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 is going to speak to you. So I walk over and start speaking to this lad, lad, right, not realising who it is. And I'm like, where are you from, mate? And he's like, Cardiff. I said, what's it like to ride in the Tour de France? Yeah, it's good. You know, I've done it 13 times now. And it slowly dawns on me that I'm talking to Geraint Thomas, who won the Tour de France. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I really hasn't, I hope he hasn't sussed that I didn't know who I was talking to. And I'm just asking him questions like, will now. well, if he gets to hear this, he's going to know, isn't he? And then I'm thinking, shit, I hope I've got away with this. And I'm saying to him things like, what are you doing now, mate? He says, well, I'm just doing the warm down, aren't I? Because I've got a blah, blah, blah. And it was like he was talking in Basque to me. I'm just nodding along in agreement, pretending to know what he's going on about. Anyway, Jim Ratcliffe operates a very professional cycling club. Nice are ascendant in football. He's probably in the final chapter of his life. Shot across the bow was definitely a reason for that Chelsea bid. It went in late. That was told to me two weeks ago that that was done very intentionally. So it's all circumstantial. I'm just not going to get carried away. I don't think anyone should get carried away. Okay, well, if you feel like Andy covering cycling about this Manchester United current situation, there's lots of great reading, of course, on The Athletic about it. Laurie's read from back in 2020, Matt Slater's piece as well. They're both up there. And remember, you can subscribe for just £1 a month now. For the first six months, go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod and sign up to get full access to all our great writing and ad-free versions of The Athletic's podcast as well. That's theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod.
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Okay, you thought you'd escaped it, but it's time for this. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set. Who needs Frankie de Jong, Andy Mitten, when you can drop exclusives about Manchester United being interested in signing Christian Pulisic on loan? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I wrote the story. My sources are good, and I'll stick to the facts, which are Manchester United want to take him on loan. He's got four extremely interested parties. The others are Atletico Madrid, Juventus, and Newcastle United. Uh, I'm told he would prefer Manchester United. I've seen pictures of him in a United kit as a child. Not really true that he was a United fan. He just got taken to Old Trafford when he lived in Oxfordshire as a kid. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's all it's all true, and um, so that's why I, I wrote the story because I'm a journalist. Yeah, that's good. That um, injury record a little bit questionable at Chelsea, but there's some detail in your piece on the Athletic which dispels his recent record and why he's not really been playing, which feels more like an issue that Thomas Tuchel has with Pulisic as opposed to um, his actual um, injury record in recent times. Phil Buckingham also written a backgrounder really about why. Chelsea might be okay with loaning Christian Pulisic to Manchester United and why Pulisic might be interested in coming to Old Trafford as well. But you forget, Andy, that he was £58 million when Chelsea signed him only three years ago. He was. He went from, from Dortmund, where he'd done really well. He had a very good first season at Chelsea. He's played in seven major cup finals. So even though he's very young, he's, he's very experienced already. Uh, the injury point, um, I dug into it, he's, he's not missed a game to injury since last October. At the start of last season, he had an ankle injury and, and he had COVID as well. D- d- there's an issue between him and Thomas Tuchel, it's as simple as that. And he wants to play football because he's a footballer and he's got the World Cup coming up. And because he's not started the first two games of the season... Uh, he wants to do what's right for his football career. So it all makes sense. What I didn't put in the piece was that Manchester United have looked at him several times over the years. There's been conversations uh, when he was at Dortmund, before he went to to Chelsea, um, even when he was at Chelsea, even a year ago, Manchester United. So this this isn't something that's just come about um, overnight. He's very versatile as a player. And again, I did a lot of digging around, asked people about him. Um, his stats are really good. You know, his assist and his goal rates are really good. And uh, a coach said to me, he's not a beautiful player to look at, but he just gets in there, he comes out with the ball. I think I saw him play in Madrid in the semi final of the European Cup when he scored. It's fantastic. So he can obviously do it at a level. And I, I, I'm in, I'm in favour of it, not just because I wrote the story. I think he can play left, he can play right. But I totally take the point that. He's not a holding midfielder, he's not a goalkeeper, he's not a right-back, and he's not a number nine. But if a deal can be done um, for a year, uh, a loan move, because that's what it would be, then I would be in favour of that. 
partly because I've been so disappointed with the players who play in his position so far this season. I thought Jaden Sancho was really good pre-season and he's just done nothing. Ditto Marcus Rashford. I wish I was uh, saying this differently, but we, we know what we see with our own eyes. Yeah, and of course you've heard the changing music that we've just played. That's because David Ornstein has reported that De Jong is looking improbable now for Manchester United. I think we'll discuss that another time because that could be a whole other podcast, I think. But, Laurie, what do um, Christian Pulisic, Frankie De Jong, Hakim Ziyech, Casimiro, Moises Caicedo, Serginio Dest, Matthias Kuna, Anthony, João Felix, Alvaro Morata, Marco Asensio, Ruben Neves, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Memphis Depay, Yuri Tillemans, Jamie Vardy, Mario Riccardi, Jan Sommer, Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, Cody Gagpo, Thomas Munier, Adrian Rabiot and a man called Griezmann all have in common. Well, I know this because you told me before we came on. Oh, thanks for that. <laughs> all been linked with Man United in how long? 24 hours, 48? Last 48 hours, 24 hours, yeah. Unbelievable. I love that you've actually noted them down. Took a while. <laughs> there's not there's not much else that links them because, you know, you go from Frankie de Jong to Adrian Rabiot, different kind of players, to Casemiro, Andy would know better, but feels like another different kind of player, really. Um, okay, they're all midfielders, but the different profiles, aren't they? Um, and that's what kind of gives this final finish to the window a familiar, frantic feel. That's a lot of Fs, isn't it? I take what Andy's saying, great story on Christian Pulisic. I mean, at least that is United going for a player at another big club in the Premier League. They don't really do that. You know, I, th- I think it's even been a policy almost um, that they kind of don't do that. Um, now, the fact that they are only loaning him, that would that would be the only concern that I have. He's 23, clearly he's, he's you know, got miles to go in his career massively and he's very talented but the loan you kind of you really want players that are here permanently don't you he's clearly wants to get games right for the world cup uh, for the usa so okay fine you know he's going to be playing um to his maximum you'd think but also it's it's a it's a useful move for him um to, to manchester united whereas you'd want united to be getting players at the good moments in their career wedded to the club for a long, long time. So, yeah. But, I mean, as you say, I'll touch on it a little bit because I do think it's kind of significant, the Frankie de Jong uh, development, that it does feel like, you know, it's it's not going to happen. That, that's the first time that I've felt this is kind of now drawing a line under it. I'm still told that... Definitive. Uh, well, I'm still told that Eric Ten Hag wants him, that he will, you know, keep trying. But it feels like, you know, ultimately United are moving on, which is why we're getting so many links with midfielders. Moving on to Casemiro, Andy Mitten. Yeah, United are definitely interested in in Casemiro. I spent the last four hours of my life talking to people in Madrid about the prospect of Casemiro leaving you Madrid. You make it sound so hard. Well, I was going to have my teammate and you know do normal oh, things like feed the dog who's now starving, but instead I'm like, I can tell, I can tell, you, ask me anything about Casemiro, mate. I can tell you what he has for he has for tea, whereas I should be having things for tea. Um, yep, getting. What size shoe is he? Don't know what size shoe he is. I'm afraid, mate. But I do know he's got a personal trainer. <laughs> don't know everything there. And he starts his. his t- <laughs> you could easily catch me out here, can't, can't you? Who does he play for? He plays for Stoke. No, he plays, <laughs> he's um, he's very very tight with Ancelotti, who sees him as a future manager. He's a complete tactics geek. He watches games on Y Scout by himself. Massively important in Madrid's successes. He plays at the base of that Bermuda Triangle with with Tony Cruz. Um, 
and Luka Modric. Madrid are evolving. Madrid have brought two players in in his position in recent years, uh, age 19 and 22. Um, his salary is good, but Manchester United could comfortably beat it. I think if United wouldn't have come in, he would have carried on happily playing in Madrid where his family are settled. But I'm told now he's got this offer and financially would blow what he's paid by Madrid out of the park. Um, he's clearly a world-class player. A couple of similarities with Rafael Varane, which won't fill Manchester United fans with, with too much heart. Um, but he's a top player. And, and if Eric Ten Hag uh, thinks he can fit into his team, because one person said to me he's not a Ten Hag type of player, actually, and that same person said to me Christian Pulisic is, um, we might see some movement there. Uh, as from Real Madrid's perspective, they've not been approached yet, so it's only the player. Um, would Madrid sell him for 70 million? I think they would. A really good point was put to me that Madrid don't like moving their legends on, but if those legends ask to move, which Casemiro would have to do, Madrid could say, look, he, want, he wanted to leave. And also their recent record of moving their legends on is not a bad one at all. So look at Madrid post-Ronaldo, post-Varane, post-Ramos. They've carried on winning. You know, This isn't, well, we're getting worse because we're selling our best players. <laughs> They've actually got better. Someone said to me about two hours ago, uh, it wouldn't be the worst time to sell Casimiro. Okay, so that's one to keep an eye on, definitely. Um, it's good that you're writing some truth, to be fair, Andy. I'm sure Cristiano Ronaldo will be happy with that, considering his opinion of the media in this country. What an interesting, weird comment that was on Instagram, Laurie. So the media telling lies, I, I found the most interesting aspect that he actually has a notebook where he keeps a record of these things. And by the way, Cristiano, the tally is a lot higher than 100. Yeah. He's obviously not been across absolutely everything, has he? Uh, but five were right, so I don't know whether to congratulate you or commiserate you. You're either part of the absolute minority or the vast majority. Oh, it's the 95, isn't it? We'll, we'll, we'll be getting... You know, in two weeks' time, whenever it is, although Gary Neville sort of said to him, you should that be speaking out now. That was even weirder. Just say it now, mate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's good that you've mentioned that because I can reveal exclusively Talk of the Devils on the 1st of September. There will be a special guest. Uh, we'll reveal more on that in the coming days, of course. <laughs> I, I am joking before anyone gets into that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting that he's done this now. You know, clearly, you know, whenever people have stuff written about them, they'll be thinking, that's not the truth. That's not how it went down. You know, this is wrong. Um, so I listen, don't eat my lunch alone. He doesn't eat his lunch alone. He hasn't been flapping his arms in training. Um, listen, let's let's see. I'm I'm intrigued. I'll get my popcorn out and I'll happily watch an interview with Cristiano Ronaldo. A compelling character. I'm sure he could say a lot of things about the club as well as you know uh, the team and, and his thoughts on various matters, which could be interesting. Um, let alone the media. It would be interesting, wouldn't yeah. it? Although, did you notice, I think Piers Morgan said he'd been speaking to him for that this whole time, which I certainly couldn't have worked out from various tweets that he'd sent previously. But um, you do kind of wonder, is he going to do another Piers Morgan life stories um, and, and kind of do it that way? Um, but listen, whatever format he chooses, people will be tuning in and all, all power to him. Well, we've not actually really mentioned the small matter of Manchester United against Liverpool, have we, on Monday night, Laurie? It goes without saying, a hugely, hugely important game for United this. Forget the fact it's against Liverpool. They need points. They need a point. 
They need goals. We don't want Alexis McAllister to be our top scorer any longer, do we? <laughs> yeah, two games in, top scorer, own goal. I mean, listen, Liverpool are coming to Old Trafford not in the greatest of health. You know, as you said earlier, United can actually go above them with a win, um, as remote as that may seem at the current moment. You never know. But And Darwin Nunes has been sent off, hasn't he, for violent conduct, which was kind of funny, that, that running that he had, um, you know, and, and kind of exploded with his with his head um, and so he, he's going to be banned for it which is I think a positive for United clearly you know he's, he's a um, he's certainly somebody that I think you, he would he would go up against Lisandro Martinez wouldn't he and try and assert his physical presence um, it'd be interesting to see who Eric Tenag picks in the back line given that but I did is think there I- a person by the way in this country who hasn't said that Lisandro Martinez is five foot nine yet I mean I, I have never I didn't actually mention his height one fact I did not mention his height repeated you didn't know, but I've never heard anyone's height repeated so often. Yeah, okay, he's not had a brilliant start, has he? But come on. I think because it, it is unusual, isn't it? I mean, and, and Jamie Carragher made a very strong point on Monday Night Football and saying that he can't play at centre-back in the Premier League, which I think was too strong because woe betide me for trying to say what a Premier League defender looks like to a guy that's played however many games he has in the Premier League. But um, <laughs> Let's do it anyway. I know, yeah. let's do it. But, but listen, I, I do think that he could... You know, develop. You never know. We saw Patrice Everett. Okay, he was a left back, but he got monstered at the far post on his one of his early games uh, against Fulham, I think, by Brian McBride, and and um, he he came through okay. But you know that it, different times and different positions. So maybe there will be some tweak to it. Maybe I mean, Carl said it. Maybe he ultimately will come into central midfield. Maybe he is the defensive midfielder that we've been chasing all this time. Um, but I, I do think that the game against Liverpool shouldn't be we shouldn't look at Liverpool getting two points from two games and think they're an easy touch because I saw them against Crystal Palace yeah they were, they were scratchy against Fulham but Palace they went down to 10 men they were already 1-0 down and, and they dominated the game and you know got back into it 1-1 Luis Diaz great great goal he's going to be a, a handful um, so yeah if you're kind of thinking United need to be on it and the they just can't concede early because I think if they concede early, the atmosphere will totally drain and it'll get fraught and tense and that'll just you know snowball into an even worse performance. I wouldn't be surprised if Liverpool hammered Manchester United. I'm, I'm sorry to say that um, with with Lissandro. Um, he's not the tallest. I've not read how, how tall he is anywhere, but I have read that he marked Erland Haaland out of a match playing against him last year. So he can play against taller players. Wouldn't be stunned if he moved towards the left or into a midfield role in the future. I'm not saying that's happening against Liverpool uh, at all, but he's had obviously a tough start. Uh, I hope that if Bruno Fernandes gets the type of chance he had against Brighton and Brentford early on in the match, that he doesn't think, right, top of the stand is what I'm aiming for. Just bring (laughs) it down a little bit. And try and get it within 20 metres of the top of the goal. You've got to put your chances away like that. I'll go to the game on Monday. I'll be thinking what's happening before the game. Because as obviously we've talked a lot about that. Uh, knowing the Manchester United soap opera, there will have been 300 new stories to talk about before we walk to the game uh, at Old Trafford on Monday. Uh, when the kickoff goes, I will honestly think that United will win. I love how you're saying I all this do. with your hands on your head. I am, I know, I know, yeah. Listeners I, I, to the podcast won't be able to see that, but um, I, think I don't a, know what that says. I think a body language expert would be able to say I've got inner turmoil here. <laughs> you're now trying to pull your hair out, yeah, quite literally. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about it because I know how good Liverpool can be. 
But just imagine, just imagine if we won. Casimiro, last minute header, bang. <laughs> Christian Pulisic's Christian cross. Pulisic, yeah. Shot, yeah. And did you know that Captain America was actually filmed in Manchester? That might be the real reason why Pulisic wants to move to Manchester United. Yeah, Pulisic into Casemiro, bang, the world's great. Joel Glazer walks onto the pitch at the end of the game, claps everyone. <laughs> stop me talking now. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop you talking now because that's the end of the podcast and what a brilliant way to leave it. Laurie and Andy, thank you so much. So much insight in that podcast. We've had a bit of fun in there as well, but some really important information about Manchester United's ownership at the moment and also, of course, the absolute merry-go-round of the transfer market. And the good stuff, hopefully, will keep on coming as well. We're going to record a podcast after that match on Monday night against Liverpool. Let's hope there's something positive to reflect upon on the pitch for Manchester United in that game. Maybe we can celebrate our first point of the season, our first goal, possibly. Uh, We'll have to wait and see, of course, how that one works out. But look out for that, of course, after the Liverpool game. Um, and if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, you can do so now for just £1 a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. But Andy, Laurie, thank you for staying up late to do this on Wednesday night. I hope everyone enjoyed that. Lots and lots to digest. And hopefully a more positive match to look forward to. Whatever happens, we'll see you on Monday. Take care. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. I don't know why I ended that like I was talking to one of my friends, but you all feel like friends now. So take care. Look after yourselves. Mind how you go. Ta-ra. Athletic.